Well, we're glad to welcome to the pulpit again Pastor Jim Butler from Three Grace Baptist Church in uh, Chilliwack. If you would take back our greetings to the congregation as well and uh, thank them profusely for giving you, I was going to say a free day, but that's not really a free day. <laughs> uh, but anyway, thank them very much for us. Brother, please come. Well, you can turn back to Judges 15. And I will reread the passage. I just, as I said, like to have it in front of me. So Judges 15, beginning in verse 1. After a while, in the time of wheat harvest, it happened that Samson visited his wife with a young goat. And he said, let me go into my wife, into her room. But her father would not permit him to go in. Her father said, I really thought that you thoroughly hated her. Therefore, I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister better than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be blameless regarding the Philistines if I harm them. Then uh, Samson went and caught 300 foxes, and he took torches, turned the foxes tail to tail, and put a torch between each pair of tails. When he had set the torches on fire, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and burned up both the shocks and the standing grain, as well as the vineyards and olive groves. Then the Philistines said, Who's done this? And they answered, Samson, the son, uh, son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Samson said to them, since you would do a thing like this, I will surely take revenge on you. And after that, I will cease. So he attacked them, hip and thigh, with a great slaughter. Then he went down and dwelt in the cleft of the rock of Etam. Now the Philistines went up and camped in Judah and deployed themselves against Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? So they answered, We have come up to arrest Samson, to do to him as he has done to us. Then three thousand men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam, and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? What is this you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. But they said to him, We have come down to arrest you, that we may deliver you into the hand of the Philistines. Then Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not kill me yourselves. So they spoke to him, saying, No, but we will tie you securely and deliver you into their hand. But we will surely not kill you. And they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting against him. Then the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. And the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned with fire, and his bonds broke loose from his hands. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, reached out his hand and took it and killed a thousand men with it. Then Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have slain a thousand men. And so it was when he had finished speaking that he threw the jawbone from his hand and called that place Ramath-Lehi. Then he became very thirsty. So he cried out to the Lord and said, you have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant. And now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised? So God split the hollow place that is in Lehi, and water came out, and he drank, and his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore he called its name Enhakor, which is in Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel twenty years in the days of the Philistines. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God and Holy Father, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and that it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. And we pray now that your Spirit would guide us as we consider this particular passage of Scripture. We thank you for this salvation wrought by God through your servant Samson. And may we appreciate the mighty and powerful and glorious works of God that we find recorded in Scripture that we see fleshed out in our daily lives. We know that the God of Samson, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is our God. You are a blessed God and a, and a glorious God and a God who is for His people. Forgive us now for all of our sin and unrighteousness, and we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Many, many, many years ago, I worked at Northrop Grumman before I uh, got into the eldership and moved up to Chilliwack. And I remember working with a particular fellow, and one night he came to work, and he said, you know, I was a Christian, and he said, I just saw this documentary about Samson on, you know, A&E or one of these channels. And he said, Samson was a terrible person. And then uh, f- a few years ago, we used to do a, a, a Bible study at a retirement residence, and I remember announcing the text and say I was going to speak about Samson, and this elderly lady sort of rolled her eyes. And I have found that the church collectively rolls its eyes at the mention of Samson. I think we have this idea that he was this kind of a brute, big, strong fellow, but he was governed by his passions and governed by his lusts. That's not at all what we find in the written narrative concerning Samson. The book of Judges is all about deliverance. It's all about salvation. It's all about saviors. These judges prefigure, or there's a typical significance about them that points us to our Lord Jesus Christ. And Samson is not an exception to that. Just just for a few illustrations in the life of Samson himself. Look at chapter 14, specifically at verse 3, when he asks for this wife from the Philistines. Verse 4 tells us, But his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines, for at that time the Philistines had dominion over Israel. So if uh, Israel, Judah specifically, is going to be content with Philistine government, God Most High is going to raise up Samson to sort of bring an end to that. And then as well, we have that account where he kills this lion. And notice that he doesn't tell his mother and father. Now, we live in a day and age when anybody does anything, they take a selfie and they put it on Facebook. Killing a lion would certainly garner a lot of support from our friends about how wonderful we are, but but not so with Samson. I would argue as well that in chapter, well, uh, just continuing chapter 14, notice specifically at verse 19, then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and he went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of their men, took their apparel, and gave the changes of clothing to those who had explained the riddle. So his anger was aroused, and he went back up to his father's house. It wasn't anger that drove him to kill these Philistines. It was the Spirit of God Almighty. The anger comes now that he goes after his wife. And then chapter 16, specifically in verse 1, I would argue that when he goes into this harlot at Gaza, the parallel passage is Joshua chapter 2. The way the spies went and stayed with Rahab the harlot, it was a strategical move. It was a a tactically good move so that they could reconnaissance the city of of Jericho and bring that city down. uh, uh, Samson does not go into her. He doesn't have relations with her, but rather he is a faithful strategist who is advancing the kingdom of God on earth in his protection of and in his provision for the nation of Israel. But four times in this Samson cycle, so in chapter 13, verse 1, to chapter 16, verse 31, you have the birth of Samson, his marriage in Timnah, his victory at Jawbone Height here, and his victory at Gaza. 
Four times we see that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Now, brethren, in the Bible, that doesn't happen with a lot of men. Now, of course, we have the Spirit. He is our seal and guarantee according to Ephesians 1, verse 13. But but when it comes to particular individuals in the Bible, you don't see four times, many times, where the Spirit comes upon a particular man. And it does so here. He does so here in 1324, 14.6, 14.19, and again, 15.14. This is not the exploits of a sensual, carnal, lust-filled man, but rather a servant of God Most High who carries out the task that had been given to him by the Lord, and he does so effectively, he does so efficiently, and he does so in a manner that brings glory to God. And of course, we have divine commentary. Samson's in the Hall of Faith in uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 11. So he is a good man, a faithful man, a brother that we ought to esteem, and a brother that we ought to love. So I want to look at chapter 15, the triumph of Samson at jawbone height under three heads. First, the betrayal by his father-in-law in verses 1 to 8. Secondly, the treachery of his countrymen in verses 9 to 13. And then finally, the triumph over his enemies in verses 14 to 20. But let's look first at the betrayal by his father-in-law in verses 1 to 8. We notice the return of Samson according to verse 1. So remember, the end of chapter 14, basically his wife betrayed him. He chastises the, the people and says in verse 18 of chapter 14, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. So there was a little breach, a little bit of discontinuity in terms of a loving relationship there with his wife. But he doesn't hold grudges. He doesn't bear her a grudge. And we see that in chapter 15 at verse 1. After a while, in the time of wheat harvest, that becomes important later when he burns down their wheat. In the time of wheat harvest, it happened that Samson visited his wife with a young goat. That would be akin to flowers and chocolates. He wants to get back with his woman. He wants to get back with his wife. This is a good thing. He didn't bear grudges. A lust-filled, lust-crazed, sensual man bears grudges. He's full of pride. He goes into the, the, the prostitute at Gaza. But that's not Samson. Samson's a godly, faithful man. Notice the prohibition by the father. He said, let me go into my wife, into her room, but her father would not permit her to go in. So her father said, I really thought that you thoroughly hated her. Therefore, I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister better than she? Please take her instead. I submit that the lust-filled, sensual uh, people in the passage are the Philistines. This man has no sort of problem taking Samson's wife, giving her to another, and then ponying up his other daughter and giving her to Samson. Samson doesn't take her. Samson is not uh, driven by his lusts here. And then notice what we find specifically in terms of Samson's sort of recompense upon the Philistines. Notice the the destruction of Philistine property according to verses 4 to 6. Then Samson went and caught 300 foxes and he took torches, turned the foxes tail to tail, and put a torch between each pair of tails. Maybe you're like me. You read passages like that and you kind of try to envision it in your mind. Don't do that with the face of the Lord Jesus. I know that we're not supposed to make images uh, of our Lord Jesus, but in passages like these, how did he do that? What does that exactly mean? I think Daniel Block has a good word of encouragement here. He says, how Samson accomplished this is a greater mystery, but it fits into the picture of a man who kills a lion single-handedly, kills 30 Philistines, breaks brand new ropes that bind him, slays a thousand Philistines with a jawbone, and brings a house down over thousands of reveling Philistines. 
So I may not know the logistics, but I know that God has told us that that is precisely what he does in terms of bringing this destruction upon their property. So it was a blow to the economy there in Philistia. But it was also a blow to their religious structure, their religious system. Remember that the Philistines worshipped Dagon. Remember that scene in 1 Samuel chapters 4 and 5. The Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant. They put it in the temple of Dagon. What happens when the Ark is there in the temple of Dagon? Well, the, the, the Philistines, the heathen, come in to worship Dagon and it had fallen over. Well, of course, they have to pick it back up. I've often thought, if you have to pick up your God, you've got the wrong God. The blessedness of our God is that He picks us up, is that He washes us, is that He cleanses us, is that He beautifies us with His garments. We don't have to pick Him up and put Him on the shelf. But again, they come back the next day, and what happened? Not only has has He fallen down, but pieces of Him are broken off. But Dagon also had the particular prerogative to be the God of grain. He was the one that was over their produce. He was the one that was over their yield. And so when uh, Samson burns down their grain, he not only strikes a blow against them economically, but he strikes a blow against them religiously. Your God is not able to protect your grain fields. Your God is not able to withstand the, 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 the foxes and the torches that were set alight by this man Samson. So notice what happens in terms of their response in verse 6. It says, Who has done this? And they answered, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Again, these are the wretches in the story. Samson's the hero. The church ought not to collectively roll its eyes when it comes to a consideration of the deliverer that God Most High had raised up. And then on the heels of this, he's not only given them a blow economically, He's not only given them a blow religiously, he gives them a blow physically. He actually destroys many of them. Notice what we find there in verse 7. Samson said to them, since you would do a thing like this, I will surely take revenge on you, and after that I will cease. So he attacked them hip and thigh with a great slaughter. Then he went down and dwelt in the cleft of the rock of Edom. Again, what this particular idiom means, I'm not altogether uh, uh, privy to, but I like the NIV. Not in many places, but I like it here. He attacked them viciously and slaughtered many of them. Again, this was the occasion that God was moving against the Philistines. And we're going to see more about that now. Now notice, after this betrayal by his father-in-law, we've got the treachery of his countrymen. You see this in Old Covenant Israel. You see, they not only had an external threat vis-a-vis the Philistines, but there was that perennial problem of an internal threat. The church has that as well. 2 Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul cautions Timothy about what things will look like in the last days, which I take as a reference to the the, the time frame between the first and the second coming of the Lord Jesus. I don't think we're waiting for this last days sort of a thing. It's upon us now. We know that because he tells Timothy, avoid such men. He's describing conditions that obtain in the church. They have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. They love money, they love themselves, they love sensuality, they love pleasure, but they have this form of godliness. So Paul is cautioning Timothy against those within the professing church that are to be looked out for. So there's the external threat here, the Philistines, but it's this internal threat that Judah presents that I think in many ways is far more disgusting. So let's unpack this treachery of his own countrymen in verses 9 to 13. The first thing we ought to observe is the lack of distress on the part of Israel. The lack of distress on the part of Israel. 
Now, if you're familiar with the book of Judges, it shows a bit of the negative side of the conquest. Remember, the children of Israel are given that mandate to go in and to utterly dispossess the land of the Canaanites. God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob this piece of land. He gave them this land. And so by the time we get to Deuteronomy, they're on the plains of Moab, and and Moses exhorts them just prior to their entrance into the promised land. Of course, Moses dies. He passes the baton on to Joshua, and it's Joshua who leads them on the conquest. Joshua, the book of, portrays it favorably. For the most part, we see a favorable, positive response on the part of Israel dispossessing the land of the Canaanites. But we get to the book of Judges, and we see that they leave some. They leave some here. They leave some there. They leave some there. Well, what happens in the book of Judges is that they become more like the Canaanites. The Canaanization of Israel obtains during the period of the judges. So God raises up these judges and he uses them to bring victory to his people. So basically the people sit against God. God raises up a foreign oppressor. The people then repent, not from their sin, or, or at least they call out to God for some sort, of, some sort of mercy because they don't like the physical pain. And then God provides them with the deliverance. So go back for just a moment to Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3, just to see a marked difference when we come to the Samson cycle. So notice in Judges 3, specifically at verse 9, when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them. So again, they cried out. Again, not necessarily in repentance. They didn't like the pain. They didn't like the oppression. They didn't like the hardship. So even in that, God is gracious to alleviate their hardship, to alleviate their, their oppression. Notice again in verse 15, But when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. So again, we see the children of Israel under this foreign oppression, and they cry out to the Lord. They don't like that distress. Look at chapter 4, verse 3. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Notice in chapter 6, in the Gideon cycle, specifically at verse 7. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites. And then once again in chapter 10, specifically at verse 10. Chapter 10, at verse 10, we see the same sort of consistency. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have both forsaken our God and served the Baals. There it sounds like repentance. They see what's happening, they see the problems, and they cry out to God. Now turn lastly to Judges 13, specifically at verse 1. Again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. You don't see a cry. You don't see any indication of distress. You don't see any indication whatsoever that they want a change to the status quo. In fact, I've already read, notice in chapter 14, specifically at verse 4. For at that time, the Philistines had dominion over over Israel. So I mentioned this lack of distress because I think it goes a long way to help us understand the treachery of Judah. They had welcomed this. They had identified with their captors. They had embraced it. For Judah now, the problem, the enemy, isn't the Philistines. For Judah now, the problem or the enemy is Samson the deliverer. So notice the abundance of cowardice that we find here in verses 9 to 13. So in verse 9, as you might imagine, the Philistines want to retaliate. 
They've just lost troops. They've lost men. They've lost people. So they want to retaliate. And in verse 9 it says, The Philistines went up, encamped in Judah, and deployed themselves against Lehi. Well, the men of Judah understood what this was. This was a provocation to war. This was, let's do this kind of a meeting. So the men of Judah, according to verse 10, said, Why have you come up against us? So they answered, We have come up to arrest Samson, to do to him as he has done to us. So the Philistines deploy themselves against them, and the Judahites question this declaration of war. And of course, the Philistines are all too ready to say, We just want Samson. Just give us the one that's the threat, and we'll dispatch him, and then we return. Everybody's hunky-dory, and nobody's the worse for wear. Now notice what they do. Verse 11 says, Then 3,000 men. It's a curious number, isn't it? If you had to come and take me down, you wouldn't need 3,000 men. But if you want to take down Samson, you better bring 3,000 men. But again, they don't resist the Philistines. They don't side with the judge. They don't side with the Savior. They don't side with the Deliverer. He has become the enemy. So then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? What is this you have done? Notice, to us. They have located themselves in terms of affinity and camaraderie with the Philistines. Not with God's man, not with God's deliverer, not with God's savior. They have seen him as the problem and the Philistines as their friends. So they send an army against Samson and not the Philistines. They embrace subjection to the Philistines. Do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? Ralph Davis, in his commentary here, makes this observation. He says, sad, sad words. Here is a people who have acquiesced to bondage, who can no longer imagine anything beyond the status quo, who see deliverance as a threat to peace, who look upon Yahweh's enemies as their rightful lords. Israel is a people who can forsake Yahweh instantly but who would not think of being faithless to the Philistines. What a pitiful question. When they say this to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? What is this you have done to us? That is indeed a pitiful question. Consider that in Judges 1, who was the first tribe that went on this foray to dispossess the land of Canaanites and to take their rightful property? It was the nation of, or it was the tribe of Judah. Judah went from warrior to coward in the space of however many years. It is a shameful and horrific thing. So they send an army against Samson. They embrace subjection to the Philistines. They identify with the Philistines. And then notice they express their desire to arrest him and deliver him to death. Look at verse 11b. I love Samson. He's a big contender for Matthew 7, 12. He loves the golden rule. As they did to me, so I have done to them. Samson's our kind of brother, brethren. And then notice what they say in verse 12. But they said to him, We have come down to arrest you that we may deliver you into the hand of the Philistines. Again, this is an observation that the the scriptures present to us. It's something that we see in Israel. We see in the new covenant Israel, which is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is an external threat. 
We, we have the world out there. We have the devil who roams about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But that internal threat at times is far more pernicious. It's far more debilitating when your own kind should back sound doctrine. When your own kind should back the truth of God's holy word. When your own kind should reject the encroaching world into the church. Now, I'm not suggesting these are somehow good churches, but at least in our area, I'm seeing more and more so-called churches flying the, the rainbow flag. You know, there's this, this cultural appropriation. You probably heard this in the political banter. Cultural appropriation. If you like Chinese food, you're a racist. If you wear a shirt that comes from Af Africa, you're a racist. You're wrongfully appropriating somebody else's culture. That's nonsense. There is a cultural appropriation happening in the professing church. When we don't hold God's gospel and God's law in esteem and with respect and we proclaim it as it is to be proclaimed, we are in danger of assimilating Philistine culture right into the life of the church. And this ought to concern us. This is happening. So they express their desire to arrest him and deliver him to death. Listen to Matthew Henry. He says, cowardly, unthankful wretches, fond of their fetters and in love with their servitude. This isn't supposed to happen. You're not supposed to identify with your captor. You're not supposed to embrace Philistine ethics. You're not supposed to embrace Philistine culture. You're supposed to resist those things, even to death, if necessary, because that's what God has called us to. We're to be faithful. We're to be persevering. We're to endure to the end. We're not to let the encroaching world get at us. We're not to let the apostate churches get at us. We're supposed to hold fast. We're supposed to press on. They assure him, or notice what, what Samson does at the end of verse 12. Uh, I'm really believing. You know, love hopes all things, love believes all things. I, I don't think the author and judges could make Samson look even better. I mean, he had sin. I think one of his sins, or if not a sin, a, a fault, is that he could be, you know, prevailed upon by women. You, you definitely see that. It happens with his wife, the, the Philistine wife in chapter 14. It certainly happens with Delilah. And you're just standing there. Samson, the, 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 don't answer her question. She, she's not out for your well-being. So, so he's got a bit of a weakness when it comes to the women folk. But it wasn't wrong for him even to marry Delilah. His first wife died. He doesn't go into this, this prostitute. Some suggest that because it's a Semitic name, she may have been a Jew. So, so you know, we, we cast up all this scorn upon Samson, and it's unnecessary. All in all, he's a godly man. All in all, he's a faithful man. All in all, he's a righteous man. And here he's a 1 Corinthians 13 man. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. So they say, we have come down to arrest you, that we may deliver you into the hand of the Philistines. So the end of verse 12, Samson said to them, swear to me that you will not kill me yourselves. Swear to me that you will not kill me yourselves. I mean, again, there's a, a, a great sort of a, a question that, that, that evidences his, his hoping and believing all things. So notice their response in verse 13. So they spoke to him saying, no, 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 Samson, we're not, we're not going to kill you. We're just going to tie you up and hand you to the guys that are going to kill you. These are wretched people. See, again, Philistines, that, that's their job. They're just wretches, right? They're, they're the perennial enemy of God's people. But when you see the professing people of God, the covenant community of God, the supposed friends of God turn their backs upon the Lord and upon His servants, 
Then sound the alarm in Zion. We can't control the world. We can't control the church, obviously. But when it comes to the church, our specific marching orders is doctrinal orthodoxy and purity. Pure worship. Use of the means of grace. Doing those things that that God sanctions and that God commands and, and that God approves of. We don't have the right to incorporate strange fire. We don't have the right to, you know, we don't want to try, you know, preaching and all that. I remember years ago reading a, a book about famous preachers, not, not the ones we actually like, but, you know, modern day famous preachers. And this fellow said, you know, my church likes stories. So we just, we move the pulpit and I just sit in a big easy chair and I, I just tell stories to the church. Could you imagine anything more miserable than that? How horrible, going to church on the Lord's Day and hearing stories from from a man. I want the preaching of God's holy word. 16 ounces to the pound. Tell me what the word of God says. Tell me what the spirit of God says. That's what our marching orders is. We're not supposed to capitulate to the world. The church, when she apes the world, never ever comes out well. That is a losing venture every step of the way. So these guys say, no, we're not going to kill you, Samson. Don't worry. We're just going to tie you up and hand you over to the guys that are going to kill you. No, but we will tie you, verse 13, securely and deliver you into their hand. But we will surely not kill you. And they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. Kyle and Dalich here says, instead of recognizing in Samson a deliverer whom the Lord had raised up for them and crowding round him that they might smite their oppressors with his help and drive them out of the land, the men of Judah were so degraded that they cast this reproach at Samson. It's a horrible scene, brethren. It is an absolutely gut-wrenching scene when the deliverer is being delivered up into the hands of the enemies by more enemies that just happen to identify as the covenant people. And that brings us finally to the triumph over his enemies in verses 14 to 20. So notice what we have there in verse 14. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting against him. That was a battle cry. They're not there to, you know, have a coffee and discuss terms of, you know, agreement and how do we make things right here. No, they come, you know, shouting because they want to destroy him. They want to kill Samson. They want to do what they have been purposing to do. And as we might expect, if we've read through the narrative, if we understand who Samson is under God, the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. You Philistines can come crying, you Philistines can come shouting, you Philistines can come armed, but Samson, with the Spirit of God, is able to vanquish the enemies of God. That's what we learn here. Samson doesn't need Judah to best the Philistines. Samson doesn't need those 3,000 warriors so that he can advance the cause of Christ on the earth. Samson and the Spirit, the Spirit using Samson, is adequate and efficient to carry out his task. Didn't Gideon learn that as well? Gideon, for a moment, thought that, 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 that numbers was the means by which he was going to vanquish the Midianites. But it wasn't the numbers. It's the power of God. This is what ought to give the church of Christ great hope. We don't, in the Reformed Baptist world, have mega churches. I think if you get a 100 members in a Reformed Baptist church, you've officially arrived at mega church status. It's pretty much the way it is. Most of our churches are small. And there might be that tendency, you know, we're just so small. I don't know what effect we can ever have upon the people. Just be faithful. 
Just use the means that God's ordained. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty for the pulling down of strongholds. And what has God given? He's given preaching and prayer to advance the kingdom of Jesus on the earth. We need to be encouraged in that. Not, well, we lack, we lack, we lack, we lack. No, we've got God. And that's what we find here in this section with reference to the empowerment by the Spirit. The author will not let us forget that everything that is happening is happening according to God's plan. Philistines need dispatching. The Judahites aren't going to do it. So Samson is raised up to bring that sanction upon them. So notice what it says then, verse 14, Then the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned with fire, and his bonds broke loose from his hands. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey. Notice that detail. Why is it a fresh jawbone? Because if it wasn't fresh, it would be brittle. The moment that Samson laid it into a Philistine head, the jawbone would have broken. The author wants us to know that God is sovereign. The Spirit has empowered him, but he also uses means. There's going to be a fresh jawbone. And the first time I preached this in our church, I had to make a candid admission. I'm not even sure, brethren, I would touch the jawbone of a donkey because it's kind of (laughs) icky. And yet Samson picks this up as his weapon of choice and dispatches a thousand Philistines. I I can't even conceive of that. Close in battle. He's not a sniper up on the top of the hill, you know, picking off his enemies. Close in battle with blunt force trauma. This isn't even a long sword. This isn't even a short sword. It's the jawbone of an ass that he is right there. Imagine the scene. Imagine the blood and the gore. Imagine the viscera and all the things that obtain in that exchange. And yet Samson does it. He's empowered by the Spirit with the means of this jawbone of a donkey. He employs this for the glory of God and the vanquishing of his enemies. I mean, imagine getting to like 599 Philistines. You've got, what, 400 more to go? 700 Philistines. we got 300 more. Again, it's an inconceivable amount that is going on here, but God raised him up for this specific task. It is most blessed. The might of the Philistines was no match for the spirit. The cowardice of the Judahites was no match for the spirit. If they all capitulate and they strengthen the hands of the Philistines, God the Lord Most High, using His servant with this jawbone, is going to bring, uh, bring victory. So then notice, in the midst of all this, after the killing of a thousand men, Samson puns. Samson jokes. Samson composes this little... I don't know, limerick, whatever it is. He does this with uh, the out of the eater came something to eat and out of the strong came something sweet. I, I glean from this that God is so gracious and so wonderful and so good that he makes his word exciting. He makes his word interesting. He makes his word and his servants in, in, in such a manner that, that we want to read of them. We, we want to hear what they have to say. So he says, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I've slain a thousand men. Moffat writes it this way, with the jawbone of an ass, I have piled them in a mass. So he understands, and he does this, and he composes this to give glory to God Most High. And then he makes this statement, or uh, uh, the place rather is called Ramath Lehi, or margin, at least in the New King James, gives it as jawbone height. And then we see this acknowledgement by the servant in verses 18 to 19. 
I, I think the, the eye-rolling church, the eye-rolling old doll that I, that I, I mentioned earlier in the, uh, in the Bible study at the elderly folks' home, they, they kind of hear Samson's prayer here, and it almost doesn't sound presumptuous, but you know, he basically says, you know, God, you've given me this great victory. Am I, am I going to die now of thirst? Is that how I'm going to end? I've, I've just dispatched a thousand Philistines with, with the jawbone of an ass, and, and I'm going to die of thirst? Listen to what he says in verse 18. Then he became very thirsty. I don't think we need to be told that. Killing a thousand men probably brings you to the place where you're very thirsty, but that's a good reminder, and it sets the stage for his prayer. So he cried out to the Lord and said, You have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised? Guess who didn't think it was a presumptuous prayer? Guess who didn't think it was an arrogant prayer? God. Because God answers his prayer. God gives him the water. God provides for his needs. But in this prayer, notice what we see. He acknowledges the Lord's hand in the victory. You have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant. He's not saying it was good that I ate my spinach. It was good that I hit the weight room. It's good that I've got 18-inch biceps. It's good that I, you know, I'm just this, this strong. No, he gives glory to God. See, he's a faithful servant of God who gives the glory to God. He doesn't take it for himself. He acknowledges his dependence upon the Lord. You have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised? He acknowledges his dependence. If I don't have water, God, I'm going to die. So who does he go to for water? He doesn't go to the Philistines. He doesn't go to the Judahites. He goes to God, whom he knows is able to provide. And then he acknowledges the Lord's preservation for his judgeship. He didn't do what he did in his own strength and power and with his own savvy. He did what he did because God sustained him and because God blessed him. Again, David says, here is Samson dependent on Yahweh. Here is the the Savior confessing that he needs saved. We have repeatedly heard that Samson's power comes from Yahweh's spirit. But in case these failed to register, we surely cannot miss this picture. Samson is anything but self-sufficient. He cries to the Lord, and then we see in verse 19, so God split the hollow place that is in Lehi. And water came out, and he drank, and his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore he called its name Anhakor, which is in Lehi to this day. And then you have this summary statement concerning his judgeship. And he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. That's splendid. That's good. That's excellent. He delivered Israel. He freed them from oppression. He vanquished their enemies. He functioned in the manner that God had raised him up to function in. So he's a hero, brethren. We celebrate men like this. We celebrate them in light of Hebrews chapter 11 for the great faith that God had given him. Now, in conclusion, just a couple of thoughts and then we'll close. First, as I mentioned before, and we can't miss it, the enemies of Samson. There are the external threats, and I don't even have to name them now. We've got lots of external threats. There is that internal threat. I sort of made a plug this morning for the confession. I'll make another one. That document doesn't protect us from all problems. It it just doesn't. But it surely helps us in protecting us from a lot of problems. We've drawn drawn the line in the sand. Here we stand. This is our confession. I'm sure when, when, when pastors Lindblad meet with somebody, they go over the confession in terms of membership. I usually pick the chapters in our confession that, that people in the church broadly have problems with. 
And I hit those sections in the confession. I mean, I like to think most of the confession, a lot of the confession, most Christians, blood-bought children of God, would agree. I mean, probably some details here and there, but, but I really hit those places where we disagree typically. Because the bottom line is, is that we need to make sure our churches, our places of worship, are according to the will and mind of God. Well, where do we get the will and mind of God? We get it in the Holy Scriptures, and we get it in summary statements like Second London Confession of 1677-89. So we need to make sure that we're on guard, not just from the external threat, but the internal threat. We don't want any usurpation. We don't want sort of gangrene spreading in the context of the church. I'm not suggesting we're ever, ever going to have perfect holy churches and you know there's no blemish or whatever. But we can, by the grace of God, seek by the grace of God to, to make sure that we are not engaged in doctrinal defection, not engaged in doctrinal sort of deterioration or a defection from the truth of God's holy word. These are things that we as the people of God can ensure and can do. We can't go fight all of the enemies of the Lord outside the four walls. Some may vocationally be called to do such things. Some may vocationally be called to do excellent things in terms of you know, uh, vanquishing the external enemies or at least seeking to, to vanquish them. But in the context of the church, hold fast that word. Hold fast sound doctrine. Support the local church. Be in the local church. Love the local church. And make sure as far as concerns you, you don't bring problems into the local church. Again, we all do by virtue of the fact that we're here. We bring problems into the church. But I think you know what I mean. I'll, I'll just read that section in 2 Timothy chapter 3. It is a bleak portrait of what we find. Bleak portrait. 2 Timothy 3.1 But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Sort of reminds one of Romans 1. Sounds like the vice list from Romans chapter 1. Now, Romans 1, the apostle is dealing with the heathen. He's dealing with the outsiders. But verse 5 indicates he's dealing here with at least professing insiders. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. That's not true of the heathen. It's true of the professing people of God. It's true of the Judahites, who instead of going after the Philistines, give up Samson into their hands. He goes on to say, to Timothy, and from such people turn away. So that's why I know it's not in the future. Timothy had the, the, the potential of running into these people. So Paul says, uh, uh, and from such people turn away. And then he goes on to a further description. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts. Truth doesn't have to creep. Truth doesn't have to be slimy and slithery. Truth doesn't have to, I mean, if you're in the Chinese underground church, you've got to be a little careful. Or if you're in Cuba, communist Cuba, you've got to be a little careful. But, but that's not what he's talking about here. These are slimy, wretched men that want to capitalize on religion for their own purposes. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts. And I, I, I love this description, but I hate this description because I've seen it true of people in my lifetime. Always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. You see that with internet theologians. You see that with YouTube guys. They're always learning, but they never come to the knowledge of the truth. It's like, read the Bible. 
Here's a good confession that summarizes the teaching of the Bible. Why would you spend your days and energy chasing down shadows on YouTube when there's faithful churches that are preaching law and gospel? And then he gives this comparison to the days of Moses. Now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the faith. But they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was. So I think that last statement, Paul wants to encourage, they're not going to win. I mean, they may do this, they may do some dastardly things, they're not going to progress, they're not going to own the church, they're not going to win, ultimately. So the external threat we face, the internal threat we face as well. Secondly, we see the faithfulness of Samson. Again, not a perfect man, but a godly man. A man who had the Spirit of the Lord and a man who walked in accordance with God's Word. Again, a few departures here and there. He was a Nazarite. He shouldn't have gone into a vineyard, but he did. Again, not condoning that, not sanctioning that, but that's not, you know, the, 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 we usually think of Samson, as I said, driven by his lusts. The Philistines opposed him. The Judahites opposed him. But God was on his side. Remember Paul in Romans 8, if, if God is for us, what can man do? I think that's a very encouraging thing. We see it here in a snapshot form in Judges 15, but we see it all throughout the life of the church. The the victory of God's people is assured, not because of the faithfulness of God's people, but because of the faithfulness of the God of the people. And we rejoice in that, and that's what we see. The deliverer ascribed ultimately deliverance to God, not to himself. And then the final thing I want to leave with all of us is that typical significance. I said that Judges is about about salvation and saviors. Israel is oppressed by foreign invaders, so what does God do? He raises up Ehud. He raises up Othniel. He raises up Jephthah. He raises up uh, uh, Barak. He raises up Samson. He raises up Gideon. Why? To save his people from their sins. So the typical significance is first of all seen in the mission of Samson. Turn back for just a moment to chapter 13. Chapter 13, the announcement of his birth. Chapter 13, specifically at verse 5. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Sounds a lot like Matthew 1, doesn't it? Sounds a lot like the angel's announcement concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and his specific mission. He will deliver. He shall deliver his people from their sins. So Samson is typical of our blessed Savior in his birth and in his mission. Secondly, he's typical of our blessed Savior in terms of opposition. What does John tell us in the prologue right about verse 11? He says that Jesus came to his own. What did, the, what did his own do? Ah, oh, it's, it's Jesus of Nazareth. It's the Messiah. It's the Lord. It's the King. It's the Psalm 45 God man. No, they don't do that. His own do not receive him. So in that, Samson is typical of our blessed Savior. His birth and mission is to save his people from their sins. And when he comes to save his people from their sins, they don't want saving. They don't want his intervention. They don't want his activity. They don't want his judgeship or his saviorhood. So we see that similarity. And then, of course, the third and the most obvious is what happens at the end of Judges 16. Samson is not suicidal. This was not a suicide. This was an act of war. And what do we learn, according to the narrator, in terms of the death of Samson? We learn that it was triumphant. 
In Judges 16, at verse 30, then Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all his might, and the temple fell on the Lord's and all the people who were in it. So the dead that he killed at his death were more than he had killed in his life. In other words, his death accomplished the purpose for which God had raised him up. That is typical of our blessed Lord Jesus Christ. So in his birth and mission, in the opposition to his ministry, and then in his death, we see triumph. So when you look at Samson, you're seeing a type. You're seeing a type of Jesus of Nazareth, the one who came, the one who lived, the one who died, and the one who was raised again to save us from our sins. Well, let us close in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these human deliverers that you set forth before our eyes in the book of Judges. We see the typical significance here, and we thank you. We praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, that one who came to die for our sins. We thank you for his current session now at the right hand of the Father, and we look forward to his glorious return when he shall judge the living and the dead. And as Pastor Lindblad prayed earlier, we pray that more and more sinners would come out of darkness in the marvelous light by your grace and for your glory. All of us, God, have friends or family members or people we love and are, are close to that perhaps are dead in their trespasses and sins. We appeal to you to open their eyes and their hearts to receive that, that blessed gospel. And throughout the nations, every tribe and tongue and people and nation, we pray that you would cause your face to shine upon them, that you would bless the missionary enterprise, that you would send forth your glorious gospel, conquering and to conquer. And we pray through Jesus Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.